Good evening, family. Today we see King Jesus, the Son of the living God, being crucified for the sins of the world. This was God's glorious plan. It was God's plan to crucify his son. This, beloved, is no mistake. You are looking at the beautiful work of a holy God to redeem a sinful humanity. You see, the world was in bad shape. And all were headed for eternal separation from God to live in a place called hell for all of eternity because of the sins of a man named Adam and his bride named Eve. But God, through his divine plan, came up with this plan to fix what Adam and Eve had done wrong, our foreparents, the sin they created, and the sin you and I create every day. God's plan was to take all of our sins that we've committed against him and to put them on his son. That's what Good Friday is all about. A holy God becoming sin to take our place, to reconcile you and I back into a right relationship with his father. If this doesn't happen, you and I don't have access to a holy God. If Calvary doesn't happen, there is no Easter Sunday morning. If Calvary does not happen, there is no one who has access to heaven when they leave earth. So we come to this day today with great humility, sorrow, heaviness of heart, but joy, knowing that Calvary was God's plan, and it's where God's wrath is satisfied. As I was pondering and thinking about worshiping with us tonight, family, I wanted to title this message, The Glory of the Cross, because the cross is God's plan for you and I to experience real life. And there are three things I think we can learn tonight from this message. Number one, I think we can learn how much God loves you and just how heavy the price of our sin really was. But there are three incredible observations from this one little clip in the passage that Elder Ken read for us. Tonight, I want to look at the inscription that was written above him. Secondly, I want to look at the incrimination that was rallied against him. And then number three, I'll land the plane talking about the inspiration that drove him. Let me give them to you again. The incrimination that was written above him, or rather the inscription that was written above him, the incrimination that was rallied against him, and the inspiration that drove him. The Bible says in verse 26, and the inscription that of his accusation, rather, that was written above him. And here's what it was. Mark said, the king of the Jews. And with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on the right hand 
and one on the left. And so the scripture was fulfilled. Let me say that again. The scripture was fulfilled, which says that he would die numbered among his transgressors. Beloved, when we come to these three verses right here in Mark's gospel, what you and I have the opportunity to see is that Pilate, the governor at that time, who wrote the sign that was hanging above Jesus' head, wrote this really not knowing what he was writing. You see, according to history, whenever you crucified someone for a crime in the Roman Greco period, they had to put their criminal offense above their head. It was so everybody could see why this person was being executed. And here what you see over Jesus' head is an accusation. We're executing him because he said he's the king of the Jews. Now, this is very powerful because in John's gospel, in John chapter 19, the Jews who were protesting Christ and was against him said, don't write that this is the king of the Jews. Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's response was powerful. Pilate said to them, I have written what I have written. In other words, by the Roman governor sealing the sign and making the declaration, it was supposed to be true to the Roman citizens. So there you have on the cross the inscription above our Christ. This is the king of the Jews. But secondly, it's powerful because the Bible had already proclaimed that it was so. So Jesus is fulfilling scripture and the world is now testifying to who this, this savior was. Now, something else is powerful. His sign is different from the other two guys that are on crosses next to him. The one in the middle is the one God has called the king of the Jews. The one, our prince, our savior, this separates him from all of humanity. When I look at this text, it gets even better. The Bible goes on to say in verses 27 and 28 that again, he was crucified with those other two robbers, one on the right, one on the left. And this was the fulfillment of scripture, which said he was supposed to be numbered among the transgressors. Listen. You know why this is so powerful? If Jesus Christ dies on that Friday and his cross is the only one there, scripture can't be fulfilled. He has to die with somebody else around him in order for the psalmist to be correct. If prophecy isn't correct, then the death of the Savior isn't correct. So we can rejoice today that he was, not only was there an inscription upon him, but he was dying with two other thieves. It was prophetically correct, and Jesus is fulfilling scripture. No area of this cross on this Friday is a mistake. It's the plan of a holy God. And he had already announced it centuries before that it was going to end this way. Well, we've looked at the inscription of Jesus upon the cross. Let me show you now 
the incrimination against Jesus. The Bible says in verse 29, and those who passed by, those people in the scene, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroyed the temple and you'll build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And the chief priests who were there also mocked him themselves with the scribes, saying, ah, he saved others, but himself he can't save. So let the king and let the Christ come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And then the Bible says, and even those who were crucified with him, they reviled him. Beloved, when we come to this second portion of this text, we discover that not only is there an inscription upon him, but there's incrimination against him. You know what the word incriminate means. It means to accuse someone of something. Jesus is there in all of his innocence, and yet they rail accusations against him. Here's what they accused him of. They accused him of being a false king. They accused him of being a false savior. So, so let's walk through each accusation so we can get it right according to the text. In the first accusation, they say to him, you said you, if we destroyed the temple, you would build it again in three days. Jesus did say that. In the Gospels, it's recorded. He told them, if you destroy this temple, he's not talking about the brick and mortar that was in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. He said, if you destroy this body, this temple, in three days, I'm going to raise it again. And guess what? In their accusation, they had no idea what they were accusing him of because in 48 hours, he was going to rise again from the dead. The second accusation they make against him is very powerful, too. They mocked him, and they went back and forth saying, look, he saved others, but himself he can't save. They accused him of this because Jesus said himself, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Remember, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So they were taking his words now out of context, but they were taking his words and railing accusations against him. But you know what they didn't know? That at that moment, while he was hanging there on the cross, he was actually saving folks. Because if he does not die as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. Nobody in here could be saved. They had no idea about the plan of God. The plan of God was to crucify his only begotten son that we might be saved. He was actually fulfilling the plan of God in their presence. They were looking at it, but didn't see it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been looking at something but not knowing what you're seeing. It was right there on display in our eyes. The beautiful plan of God unleashing his wrath on his only begotten son because of me, because of you, because of those we know and love. 
that we might be saved. Then the third accusation is powerful. They accuse him here. They said, let this Christ, let this king of Israel come down from the cross, and then we're going to believe. I like this, too, because in their foolishness and in their accusation, they had no idea that he was going to get down off the cross. In a few short hours, 48 hours, as I mentioned, they are going to see he's the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the called one, the chosen one. And before their eyes, they're literally, beloved, looking at the inscription. They're literally making their, accu- their, their uh, accusations, but they're going to be so wrong. I was preaching this week at Wheaton College in chapel, and I was reminding everybody that, hey, the world is going to misbehave, but don't worry about it because God has given his son a name that everybody will bow the knee to one day. Everybody under the sound of my voice, princes, kings, presidents, powerful musicians, rap stars, everybody's going to bow. And they're going to see him just as he is, the risen Savior, the King of glory. Listen, they might be making accusations now, but one day, hey, good God Almighty, everybody's going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Even those guys in the movie, the ones that accused him, that nailed the nails in his hands, they're going to bow. Well, we've looked at the inscription upon him. We've heard the incrimination against him. Let me share with you now the inspiration that drove him. And this is why I'm so fired up. I just left a church in Barrington preaching with my brother at a Good Friday service there. And I was sharing this portion of this text with them. Listen to this. Even though you and I visually get to see the agony of the Christ on the cross. Don't you know that before him was the joy of seeing you saved? <laughs> he did this, the Bible said, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. In other words, he was born to die. It was his pleasure to die. It was his delight to give up himself that you, my beloved, might be saved, might be called the righteousness of God. I have some Bible for my theology. It backs it up real good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There was love involved. Jesus did this because of the love of the Father. Well, there's something else I think is very powerful I need to share with you too. Right before this scene that happens at Calvary, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is meeting with the boys, the disciples, and they're going up to Jerusalem. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and 34, he says to them, brothers, we're going up to Jerusalem now. And the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. 
and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're going to condemn him to death. And they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles who are going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to whip him and they're going to kill him. And then he says, and three days later, he will rise. Listen, Jesus already knew this was coming and he had announced it to the disciples before they got there. This gives me great hope and forethought that God was willing to do this. That Angelus might be saved, that Evie might be saved, that David might be saved, that Sharon might be saved, that all of us might be saved. He did this willingly. Wow. So, what inspired Jesus? Seeing you and I born again. Make no doubt about it, Calvary was a bloody mess. But in spite of it all, Jesus was inspired to save you. Even though Calvary was painful, Jesus was inspired to make the trip. Even though Calvary was filled with pain, Jesus was inspired to save us. I I like the words that he uses in the gospel. He said, Angelus, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I'll take it up again. He was inspired, Brother Josh, to save me, to save you. So even though Calvary is a nightmare for you and I to look at and to wrestle with, Jesus was inspired because it pleased the Father. Well, I'm closing now, so put your chairs in the upright position. Fasten your seatbelt because there's good news coming. The good news is he was inspired by the sufferings. He was to endure. His love for the Father also inspired his obedience. His love for you and I inspired his divine works. With nails in his hands and nails in his feet, he stayed there for you and I. Remember, he's God. He can get down anytime he wants. He can stop it and shut the whole thing down. But he stays there because he's inspired because he can see you. He know you're coming. He know your babies are coming. And he's got to do this to secure your future in glory. That's the kind of God we serve. I'm hunting for an amen right there. With crown of thorns pressed in his head. With a spear plunged in his side. He was inspired. Not just to die, but to also take the sting out of death. The Bible says they took his body down, put it in a borrowed tomb. And while he was in the tomb, He got victory over death, over hell, and over the grave. We know because Easter Sunday morning, he conquers death, hell, and the grave and rises back to life. And now, guess who sits in glory? Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, with all power of heaven and earth in his hands. So, beloved, when you look at the cross, it's a glorious cross. When you look at the cross, it's God's plan to take an upside-down world and make it right-side-up with a kingdom agenda. When you look at the cross, no, this is God's answer 
for humanity. When you look at the cross, look at all of the power of God on display. When you look at the cross, it's the thing that makes a bad guy become good. It's the thing that makes a bad girl become good. It's the thing that changes everything. It's the cross. It's the cross. So much so that we've written songs and hymns about the cross. One of my favorite songs is At the Cross, At the Cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. Let's give God some praise for the cross. And now on this beautiful Good Friday, we want to seal our time at the altar with our family communion observation. You say, Pastor, why would we take communion? Because we want to remember, lest we forget the price he paid. This was another opportunity Jesus was telling the disciples now to do this in remembrance of me. This was going to be his body that he was going to give up, his blood he was going to share. And that's why the table of our Lord is so important. You know something? Millions of Christians all around the world are doing the same thing right now. Remembering the sufferings of our Lord and giving God praise. The elders are coming, and as they're coming, I'm going to prepare the table with prayer, and we're going to serve you Holy Communion. So would you bow with me as the elders are making their way, and I'll pray for us as we prepare our hearts and our minds. Our Father and our God, we come today to offer our minds to you, our lives to you, our thoughts to you, our hearts to you. We come today to remember your sufferings. We come to tell you thank you for giving up yourself as a sacrifice that we might be redeemed and saved. So we ask now that you forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and thank you for shedding your precious blood for us on the cross. We prepare our hearts and our minds now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.